predictions, prognostications, and Puxitani Phil? This is way over our heads. It's a weather and climate podcast. I'm Jim Dubois. Kenny Blumenfeld's a climatologist. Uh, Kenny, how are you doing on this Groundhog Day? You know, it's a nice, brisk, cold morning. Uh, rode into work on the bicycle and uh, didn't regret it, but uh, understand why people would if they didn't have the right gear. How are you, Jim? You know, Kenny, I'm doing well. I agree with you. It was a little chilly this morning, but I, I found it kind of bracing in a way when I stepped outside. So it gave me energy. I don't know if uh, it, it sounds like from what I'm telling you, Kenny, maybe, maybe I'm starting to have a little affinity for winter. Well, I mean, you know, it's about time. You've been here how many years? My entire life, but... Yeah. Well, you know, it's good. At some point, you stop fighting and you just accept. Right, right. You know, it's you got to live with this sucker for five months out of the year, most years. So, uh, you know, you you can either enjoy those five months and make peace with the fact that, you know, you might need some extra layers, or you can... uh Ooh, I can't imagine the alternative. <laughs> well, can't imagine. It's been in five months in uh, in, in lockdown. Uh, yeah, misery. Well, I can, I can definitely right. imagine five months in lockdown. <laughs> Maybe previously I couldn't imagine that. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Well, Kenny, I'm doing my best to embrace winter, and and I really need to do that because if you are to believe. Puxitani Phil, he is the groundhog who comes out uh, from his den. As legend has it, every February 2nd, he's done so since 1887, in Gobbler's Knob, which I just love the name of that. That's just fabulous. But but Punxsutawney Phil emerged today, saw his shadow, which means, if you believe in such things, six more weeks of winter. So that's why I went out this morning and I opened my arms and, and just felt winter all about my body, because I know if Punxsutawney Phil is correct, I better get used to it for another six weeks. I mean, I, I was out this morning and the sun was starting to shine, but I, I couldn't find my shadow. I wonder what that's about. <laughs> well, apparently, from what I understand, it doesn't always matter if there's if there's the sun is out, if it's an overcast day or what, because I guess on occasion, Punxsutawney Phil has uh, seen his shadow on days where, according to the climate records, it was overcast in Punxsutawney Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. And there've been other days when he has emerged from his den and not seen his shadow, but according to the climate records, it was a bright sunny day. So I guess it it all depends. But anyway, we almost didn't have the traditional Groundhog Day this year because Milltown Mel, who apparently is the Groundhog, who has served as Punxsutawney Phil for multiple years, Uh, passed away recently, and as of yesterday, according to NPR, they were scrambling to find his replacement and weren't sure that they would in time for the usual event to take place this morning. But they found a stand-in, Bunxatani Phil saw his shadow, and the rest is history. (laughs) I'm going to just do a timeout here real quick, Jim. I think that Milltown Mel is a different that's a different groundhog. Oh, it is. I I'm think totally, it is. Okay. Maybe I, I, I think I'm on the NPR. Myself. I'm on the NPR story and it's basically, there's several different cities that have oh, kind of their version of Punxsutawney Phil. You so, are correct. Uh, sorry that Punxsutawney Phil is alive. It's that. Milton okay. Mel All right. Croaked. <laughs> well, then that's my mistake because now as I skim 
further in the story, I, uh, I see that he is associated with Milltown, New Jersey, and has absolutely nothing to do with yeah. Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania. So I digress, but I guess it, it, it serves the point that apparently uh, this phenom of the ability of uh, groundhogs to predict the winter weather isn't limited to just one city in one state. This is, this is a, uh, perhaps it's even a worldwide phenom. We don't know. <laughs> right. And, and the, the, the uh, Groundhog Day tradition, I think that Punxsutawney Phil is the longest running one in the U.S. You know, where this particular groundhog became the winter spokesperson for the rest of the country is beyond me. But let's just be honest here, Jim, with with the forecast being either a mild winter or six weeks more of winter. Uh, on February 2nd, to, to Minnesotans, that's a little like saying, okay, you can have vanilla ice cream or you can have the one that's not strawberry. If we only have six weeks of winter, that's actually a pretty warm winter. So right. to us, uh, <laughs> what's the difference? Good point, Kenny. <laughs> <laughs> what's the difference? If our if our winter's over on March 15th, we got off easy. <laughs> exactly. Uh, even, exactly. And that's even, even in light of, you know, the way that the climate has changed. It, certainly, we have had winters that have ended before March 15th. But, you know, you also got to remember the thunder blizzard of 2018. We had heavy snow in mid-April in 2019 and 2020 in Minnesota. And uh, some listeners may recall that on May 1st, May 2nd, somewhere in there, in 2013, we had over a foot of snow in southeastern Minnesota uh, in the area, you know, around Northfield and Rochester, uh, in, in toward, towards the Red Wing area. So, uh, yeah, if we get <laughs> if we only get six weeks of winter, good for us. <laughs> and I don't want to pick on Phil. I mean, this no. brings up a lot, a lot of questions, Jim. <laughs> yes. Right, a lot of questions. Okay, <laughs> so if a groundhog uh, does a groundhog actually see its shadow? And if a groundhog sees its shadow, does it know it sees its shadow? <laughs> Do groundhogs know what shadows are? <laughs> yeah, you know, I think the problem I, is I you, it's a you fair just, question. it's a very fair question. And uh, I guess the uh, followers of Punxsutawney Phil just go on blind faith because I believe his handlers are known as the inner circle. It's a very elite group of people in Punxsutawney. Pennsylvania. They're the guys who wear the top hats that you see with uh, oh, yeah. Punxsutawney Phil. And one of them is able, apparently, to to speak groundhog ease. So it's not only that Punxsutawney Phil does or doesn't allegedly see his shadow. He also engages in a conversation with this guy from the inner circle and apparently goes into greater detail about his predictions for the weather. So who knows? <laughs> I, you know, they, I, I figure while he's at it, they should get his opinions on other things. There you, you go. Know. Maybe he can fix the uh, political mess we're in. But yeah. So <laughs> we'll who's going to, or, you know, who, uh, who's going to get the most golds at the Olympics? Exactly. Or, um, I, th- I think that, you know, I'm glad that they do this, um, because it is a, it's a cherished tradition. Uh, listeners should know it is total malarkey. It is, um, their <laughs> national weather service did a, did an assessment of recent forecasts on a national basis. So this was, uh, basically during the 2010s 
Pucks and Toddy Phil's batting average was just under, I think it was coming in around 400. So <laughs> not even a coin right. flip. So, yeah, yeah, right. So basically this, this notion that the groundhog sees its shadow and makes an accurate prediction about the remainder of winter is actually less accurate than random chance. <laughs> so, oh my goodness. okay. So have fun. Enjoy it. Uh, I would not make plans specifically based on, on it, but you know, uh, in a way this gets at kind of our larger need, this larger desire that we have to understand things that are out of our control. And the weather, especially late in winter and early in spring, is one of those things. Uh, you know, people can feel better about the planting season coming up if they understand that the weather is going to be favorable for it. Um, and so it's it's a nice tradition. I just I hope people understand it's completely non-scientific. And I think most people do get that. Absolutely. And we should point out, too, that the science of predicting the weather is, I guess, in the uh, the scheme of human existence on this earth, a relatively recent phenomenon, because, correct me if I'm wrong, Kenny, but we really didn't even understand what warm fronts and cold fronts were until the early part of the 20th century, correct? Yeah, yeah, that that is correct. And, you know, in Phil's defense, there are professionals with advanced degrees in atmospheric science who who try their hand at seasonal forecasting. And I can't say that they're that much better than Phil. I mean, <laughs> you know, they, they obviously there's nuance and they, they, um, this is the climate prediction center, but they're not the only ones. They're the most famous ones through the, you know, mainstream will probably recognize those maps that say it's going to be above normal or below normal for temperature or precipitation. They're also uh, private sector, long range forecasters who work for, you know, they work for the various industries that would really care um, energy sector and uh, agricultural sector. There are commodities forecasters who try to, you know, get a good sense of what's going to happen in the next several months or in the coming season. It's hard work. I mean, that's just, it's, it's really hard. And it's not only because forecasting the weather in general is hard. It's just because it's, it's such a, it's such a complex system. I mean, and think about the things that we're looking for. I mean, so let's say, Jim, we're talking about the weather three months out and there's a strong indication that it's going to be uh, a cool period and a wet period. And this is hypothetical. But um, now just imagine that, that it's largely correct. And it is, you know, generally below normal temperatures and fairly wet, but it's punctuated by an astronomically hot, you know, 15 day run of, you know, warm and very dry weather. Okay. So then was it right? Was the forecast right? You know, was it, there, there's so much nuance in here too. And what people experience and remember is often different from what the facts are. So for example, last winter, uh, the winter of 20, 2020 to 2021, making sure I get my years straight here, it was a warm winter. It was, you know, and we were actually on our way to one of the warmest winters on record, probably a top 10 territory. But there was a two-week interlude during February where it was very cold. 
and it, uh, and there, you know, you and I talked about this, but it, um, temperatures were 20 degrees, 25 degrees below normal for, uh, on average for a period of almost two weeks. And so that's actually what people tend to remember about last winter. And they don't so much remember the fact that it was actually, you know, 80% of the season was mild. They don't remember that so much. They remember the piercingly cold outbreak in February. So it's interesting. It's hard work. Make those forecasts. And you're right. Um, just forecasting in general is really a, uh, I mean, you know, the, the old joke is that Aristotle coined the term meteorology and, uh, you know, within a couple hours, someone asked him what the weekend was going to be like, but truthfully <laughs> forecasting is, is a relatively recent, uh, endeavor and really, uh, got kind of serious in the 20th century. And we should point out that the accuracy of forecasts has improved dramatically, particularly since the 1950s. We actually have some stats. Um, I have one here that in the mid-50s, the 36-hour National Weather Service, then the U.S. Weather Bureau forecast, was about 20% accurate. By 2014, that 36-hour forecast was accurate over 80% of the time. Very similar for the 72-hour forecast, 1975, 25% accuracy, 2014, 70%. So we've made major strides in the last uh, 40 to 60 years. Is this, Kenny, due to the fact that we now have supercomputers that can crunch numbers and we didn't have access to that prior to, say, the mid-1950s? Yeah, that's a great point, Jim. And I would say that it's it's a combination of things. I mean, one is forecasters are now better trained. Um, meteorology is still pretty much the same science, but the tools that meteorologists have to bring into forecasting, they're not just supercomputer based, but there's a, just other analytical tools and there's concepts that really weren't available in the early decades of, of forecasting that are. So you have some very well-trained forecasters who have some very good tools. We have much better, in many cases anyway, uh, better monitoring and better data, better data quality, better programs to help analyze the data. So it's just a all in all a better system. And, you know, some of the stats that you read, I think it would be easy for a person to say, well, yeah, but they're still wrong, you know, X percent of the time. But there's been, a, you know, in our lifetime, and certainly in the lifetime of people who are older, there's been a huge change in the kinds of mistakes that are sort of acceptable um, in forecasting. And one thing that, you know, some of the younger listeners might not even be aware of is that it used to be really common for a forecast on a day to, you know, completely miss the potential for some kind of a cataclysm or a disaster. And, you know, it wasn't like it happened all the time, but sometimes, you know, forecasters would know that it could rain today, but they didn't foresee tornadoes or they said that it would be partly cloudy, but you ended up with a flash flood. And even in the 1980s, we had some phenomena where it was not supposed to snow. And then we got a lot. Or in 1984, there was this surprise blizzard that really wasn't particularly well forecast in Western Minnesota and killed a lot of people. And those kinds of things really don't happen anymore. And now there's more of the other kind of air where 
maybe people are expecting severe weather or expecting floods and they don't materialize or the snowstorm, you know, is forecast to hit, but instead it, it ends up 40 or 50 miles away. And that can really upset people because they make plans based on that. But it's a totally different kind of error from what we used to get. I mean, now, you know, forecasters largely can see most of the big weather events several days out, and they generally make accurate forecasts on them, with the exception of, you know, the that very close geographic um, specificity that's still kind of hard to resolve. And so you still see those types of mistakes, but you, you, we're sort of done with the days where, you know, we expected it to be clear and we ended up with huge downpours and damage or the days where, uh, you know, the forecast called for, you know, brisk winds and temperatures in the twenties, but people ended up freezing to death with the temperatures plunging, you know, well, well below zero. So big changes and, uh, and, you know, now the forecasters are off, they often have a pretty good handle on the general picture five days out. And when I was a kid in the eighties and 90, early nineties, that was, you know, five days out was like a Holy grail. Uh, it was a best guess and it was definitely a guess at that time. And so there's been huge improvements in forecasting indeed. Kenny, is it fair to say that forecasting may be a bit more challenging in areas with high variability, and I'm thinking like the Midwest, and maybe easier in places where there are large moderating influences like areas around an ocean? Any truth mm. to that? There's some truth to it, but I, I would be careful. There was a huge snowstorm this past, I guess it was the past weekend in Boston. Yes, two feet of snow. Two feet of snow. And that forecast was definitely a razor's edge type of forecast. You know, there's this big explosive low pressure system tracking over the ocean, not too far away from Cape Cod, you know, hundred miles or so from Cape Cod, but its position really, really mattered because that determined where the precipitation cutoff would be and where the precipitation, you know, wouldn't go. And so with those sort of razor's edge forecast, we've seen, you know, areas in the East Coast that are expecting a foot, foot and a half of snow, and they end up with six inches and everybody's mad, or they end up with two inches. So they do have some of the same issues as us, um, but the ocean does produce a moderating influence. I would say one of the bigger factors that makes the the weather easy or hard to forecast is aside from the variability, which is, which is one piece of it is the kind of complexity of the general weather patterns. So for example, Hawaii doesn't really have very much complexity. Most days the sun comes out, uh, especially on, uh, on the sunny sides of the, of the, of the islands. They've kind of a sunnier side and a cloudier side, depending on if you're up the slope, going up the slope with the winds or going down the slope with the winds. The winds in Hawaii are usually out of the east. So usually uh, the west sides are very, very bright and sunny and dry and the east sides are kind of wet. In any case, the weather there doesn't change all that much. Uh, and it's fairly simple. They don't get low pressure systems frequently. They usually just have um, kind of random heating from, uh, you know, the topography and from the patchy sunlight that's there every day. So you can pretty accurately forecast in most of Hawaii, almost any day of the year, you know, 
sunny until early afternoon with a chance of isolated showers late in the day and that or by mid-afternoon and that's a fine forecast almost any day of the year for most of Hawaii and so it's it's a little harder to have huge errors there and another another type of um, influence that I think is important is you know here in the Midwest and also on the East Coast we have a lot of uh, these very sharp fronts that move through bringing in you know, really cold air from northern Canada. And those those are those sorts of razor's edge type of situations where there's a sharp cutoff on where the precipitation is and isn't. And the path of the weather system uh, is going to be really important to the success of, of any forecast. But out in the western U.S., a cold front is a different animal because when the winds come out of the you know, when the winds come out of the west in Seattle, they're just coming off the Pacific Ocean. It's not uh, the same kind of air mass transition that we have here. And they tend to get these very broad areas of precipitation that might be, you know, a thousand miles long or wide. And it's just much harder to make big mistakes when, <laughs> when you're dealing with a right. <laughs> huge mass of, of ocean moisture. So I would say complexity or simplicity of the weather pattern, which does get at the variability. And then whether the kinds of things that you're forecasting are generally very geographically focused. So being right or wrong, is it kind of a matter of miles? Um, so that's one thing versus these larger kind of broad systems where, you know, you can easily forecast that it's going to rain because there's a swath of rain that's the size of three states moving on shore. So uh, yeah, there's some differences here. And I would say, Cutting your teeth as a forecaster in the Midwest is probably a good way to get used to the real difficult type of weather where there's a lot of geographic specificity, there's a lot of sharp changes, and as you pointed out, there's a lot of variability, changes from you know week to week, day to day even. Well, we will talk more about forecasting in a future episode, but for now, I think it's safe to say rely on the science, rely on the professional forecasters. And don't put a lot of faith in a rodent. That's a great, <laughs> that's a great statement, Jim. I support that. All right, Kenny. Great talking to you as always, and uh, we'll check in with you soon. Very good. Thanks, Jim. This is Way Over Our Heads. It's Weather and Climate Podcast. I'm Jim Dubois. Kenny Blumenfeld's a climatologist. We'll catch you next time.